Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Our series, as you all know, that we've been in for a while is called Death to Life. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring how sin is a power. It's a force that has been unleashed upon the world through humans disobeying God. And now we've seen that sin leads to death and death leads to all manner of separation. We looked at how we first off are separated from God, that we are no longer in right relationship with our Creator. But then that also means that we're separated from our very selves, that we now live in pride or fear or shame or guilt, and so we often hide and we accuse others. But we're not just separated from God and from ourselves, but we're separated from each other, that we are at war with our fellow humans. But we saw last week how in Jesus, the sin, the shalom breakers, we called it, have now become the shalom restorers, that the very people that Jesus was separated from, he's brought shalom to them and now sent us back out to restore shalom. So we're going to look at another layer of separation today, and then next week, Scott's going to conclude this preaching series as we go into Advent. But before I talk about what this level of separation is, I want to ask you guys, does anyone know what a parasite is. It's pretty gross. Sorry for messing up your stomach right now. Sin is like a parasite. Sin is an organism that lives in, on, or with another organism in order to obtain nutrients, grow, or multiply in a state that directly or indirectly harms the host. These are the, like, mild-looking parasites. If you Google parasites, you will instantly regret it. (laughs) Sin is like a parasite in that it has invaded and infected all things. So we've seen that sin has distorted our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationships with each other, but today we're going to look at how sin has separated us from the rest of creation. This morning, we want to look at what does it mean that sin has separated us from all of creation? What does it mean that we and our very bodies, our physical bodies, are not right? What does it mean that the reign of sin and death has impacted all of creation from plants, our very bodies, to storms that destroy the coast, to diseases like COVID-19 that will harm and kill some and completely ignore other bodies? What about grizzly bear attacks? What about cancer? What about disrupted genetics? What about the hurricanes that we're going to face very soon coming to the eastern United States? This morning, we want to look at how the reign of sin has impacted our relationship with creation? And how are the people of Jesus supposed to understand their relationship to the rest of creation? What is our role? What is our duty? How should we relate to creation? Are we people who should engage in creation care? Should we just bunker down and just wait for it all to be over? How are we to engage with creation? I just wanna say at the outset, There's probably a couple different camps of us here that already have some thoughts about this. For some of us, you might be thinking, it's about time the church talks about this. It's about time this church or any church finally talks about the environment, about the world, about conservation. 
Others of you might be thinking, oh Lord, here we go. This church is becoming a hippie church. Others of you might be thinking, okay, I'm going to check out for the next 30 minutes because I do not care about planet Earth. Here's what I want to challenge you all on, though. At the very outset, you all already think something about the Earth. You all already think something about creation. You either care, care too much, or don't care at all. But what's informing that? What is informing your view on creation? What narrative, what allegiance is directly shaping what you think about the world? What's informing your apathy if you're apathetic? Is it possible that you are in allegiance to convenience? If you care so much about creation that you're losing sleep, what's informing that view, that urgency, that even ideology? You see, there's something here for each of us because God and his word is going to address us today. This morning, what I want us to do is to be really good listeners to the story of God and to see that if God is really making all things new, then that directly impacts how we think about creation. This means that understanding creation and our place in it is not just for the hippies, it's not just for the progressives, it's not for the eco-warriors out there, but Jesus is calling all of us into his work of making all things new. We're going to look at Romans 8, verses 18 through 23, and I'm going to invite Brad, Lucy, up, and he's going to read this passage for us. Romans 8, 18 through 23. The Word of God says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. Let's pray. Jesus, we do ask this morning that as we look at this amazing passage of Scripture in Romans 8, as we seek to understand how we as sons and daughters as brothers and sisters with you, Jesus, how do we now live in this world in which we are separated from creation, but you are calling us to be your people in the midst of this creation? Jesus, I pray you'd help us to understand this. Pray you would give us a better grasp, Jesus, of how your story, the good news of Jesus, has impacted everything in our life. I pray, Jesus, even specifically for the people today that are wrestling with thoughts in their mind, that are wrestling with even accusation of the evil one, that, Jesus, you by your spirit would silence the evil one and that we would hear you speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, in this passage, is describing this world, the creation, and he obviously doesn't think things are working rightly. He uses the language, look in that passage, he uses language of groaning, longing, futility, subjected, bondage, corruption. And all of this is, he's tying this into this word he uses for creation. 
And by that, he means everything else in the world and in the universe besides humanity, because he contrasts it with humanity. So all of the subhuman creation is what he's talking about talking about. So I want us to explore this, but I honestly just want us to walk through a couple basic questions that I pulled out this week from this passage. So let's just start with question one. What does it mean that creation is subjected to futility? What does it mean that creation is subjected to futility? If you recall, over the last couple weeks in this sermon series, we've been in the book of Genesis. And if you also recall, over the last decade of our life in redemption, we have been in the book of Genesis. And that's on purpose, and we're thankful for that. In the book of Genesis, we see that God has put humanity in a garden with a mission. That man and woman and their predecessors were to relate to God in a space that God made for them. They were to image God to the rest of creation. And God's purpose, his intent, was that all later generations would follow suit. That we would be lords and stewards reigning over creation and making it a place where God and humans could dwell together. But now that purpose we've seen has been suspended. Paul would say it's been put into a place of being futile. It has emptiness. It seems purposeless now. It's void of purpose. The intent seems to be gone. In one sense, if you study the biblical language, it's almost as if we've gone to a pre-creation state where there was chaos and God brought life and order. Now it seems, are we just back in chaos? Is it just futility again? And the reason for that subjection to futility that has been put into futility is because sin brings death. And the spread of death now means that the very world we live in is a place where death has gone to all things. So if you're thinking about this rightly, you should already be getting to see that there's this connection between humanity rebelling and that's affecting everything else. Are you seeing that? Human sin is now directly impacting the very world that we live in. But subjected to futility also means that creation now rules over us. We have lost our role. There's this inverse order, it would seem. Creation at times rules over us, whether that's through, in the biblical language, serpents, storms, our own bodies. We often are humbled beneath the raw, visceral power of creation. And sickness, and the colds and flus that are wrecking our poor little kids right now. Sicknesses that leads to death. And if you think about it, the way man relates to creation is the stuff that fills up most of our favorite stories, at least some of my favorite stories. Stories like, got a picture up here. Stories like The Old Man in the Sea. Stories like Moby Dick. Almost all of Jack London's writings are about man relating to nature in some way. Have you ever seen The Castaway, Tom Hanks? a man alone subjected to nature. The Revenant, a story of survival in nature. The perfect storm of man against the sea. Stories like this are simply showing us humans are subjected to creation. Man versus nature. 
And friends, this is because of human sin. This is because death and chaos is now at work in all of creation. Because we have lost what it means to rightly image God and be in allegiance to Him, now creation is cursed with death. And creation often brings death to mankind. So friends, I want you to think about the reality of that. Every time you see nature explode in chaos, every time you drive past a cemetery, every time you see a dead squirrel in the road, think about it. There's the spread of sin in death. This means creation, obviously, as we've been seeing for weeks now, All of humanity is not working the way it's supposed to. But again, as I already alluded to, this is showing us that there's this correlation, though, between human sin and the effects of death upon all of creation. Paul is showing us that humanity is so deeply tied to creation that when we sinned, it impacted everything else. One writer writes this, Paul could no more think of persons apart from their environment than he could think of them apart from their own bodies. So this means that Paul is showing us that the suffering, the groaning of creation itself directly points to the suffering and groaning of God's people. Creation proves that humanity is not working as it's supposed to. But this is where we need to see Paul's logic. He's showing this correlation which is tied to the suffering of creation and the groaning of humanity. But notice what he says. It was subjected to futility in hope. In hope. It writes, in hope that it will experience the glory of the sons of God. So what does that mean? It not only means that there's a great, I want you to think about this. It not only means that there's a great hope for the people of God, But could it also mean that there's great hope for the creation itself? Would the great hope of the glory of the children of God finally being revealed for who we are as God's children, could that glory also be connected to creation? Again, there is this mysterious connection between us and the world we live in. So then, what is this hope? Let's look at our second question. What is this hope? Why does the passage say in hope. Look with me again at Romans 8:20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul writes in hope because he knows this is not the way it's supposed to be. Paul writes in hope because he knows as we've seen over the last couple of weeks that the shalom of God is going to all things. That in Jesus, the peace, the fullness that God intended is now through Jesus and his people moving to all things in creation. The hope, if you look at the text, is that freedom from bondage is coming. Freedom that we'll obtain the glory, the weight, the worth of becoming children of God. And somehow Paul is saying That means creation is going to be set free as well. But, again, think about what Paul is saying. That we will obtain the glory of the children of God. But Paul, aren't we already children of God? Haven't we already been set free from sin? Aren't we already those who are forgiven? Hasn't in the good news of Jesus, 
the new creation already started. Friends, this is where right now you need to grab hold of this huge, massive concept that Paul always is chewing on, that's always going through his thinking, and that is the reality of the already and the not yet tension of the scriptures. Understanding this, friends, will change your life. I'm going to put up probably the most popular image in all of redemption, our two favorite circles that Scott has helped us love and appreciate over the years. If anyone does not know what this is, literally stick six and you will see this all the time. What this is showing us is that our present world has already been invaded with the future. That when Jesus literally stepped out of death in a physical body, the new world order was already breaking in. The victory and the defeat of Satan had begun. The new world broke, and a lot of times Scott's used this analogy in, in the past, and actually one of the commentators I read this week used this analogy to understand what's happening with this groaning in creation. You know, in World War II, when the Nazis were wrecking havoc over Germany, the Allies launched this invasion on Normandy Beach. They charged onto this beach with thousands of troops, and right there, the defeat of the Nazis began. They still had a long way to go. There was still a lot of battles along the way. There were still a lot of troopers that were going to die along the way. There was, not a lot of, there was a lot of cities. There was a lot of ground to take. There was a lot of pushing and then being pushed back. But D-Day and V-Day, Victory Day, it started right there at D-Day. And the victory was now coming. It was already secure. When they crossed that beach and they secured that, the end had started. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus was D-Day. The end has started. Jesus, in his resurrection body, has begun that work. So, why is there still groaning? Why is there still suffering? Why so often is creation not working? Friends, we're in that tension, that overlap of the ages. This is why, look in verse 21. This is why Paul says, in hope that we will be set free. It's a future tense use there. And then he says, we will go into, the language is like this preposition of like, we're going to move into freedom of being the children of God. This is why then he says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Do you know what first fruits is? It's when the crop is coming and you gather that first bit of fruit. And often first fruits was used in biblical language as like we would give the first fruits as an offering to God. You know, you'd have a harvest or you'd have a new crop of cattle. You'd give your first fruits to God. It's the opposite here. God is giving the first fruits to us. He's given us the spirit of Jesus as the first fruits. So we have that initial uh, understanding of the new creation breaking in because we have the spirit. So this freedom, this hope that we're looking to is a future-oriented hope. It's a hope situated in the overlap of the ages in between the two circles, but it's not a, a wishful thinking hope. It's not a, ah, I sure hope Jesus does this. I sure hope. No, it's saying we already see this. How do we bring it into right now and understand it? If we are those friends who have the first fruits of the Spirit, if we are those who Paul would say have already tasted a glimpse of what the future is going to look like, how do we now, with our imaginations 
and our spirit-filled hearts labor and work in the present. What does that mean now to be people who live in this creation with that future already breaking into right now? I have a quote up here that I've been chewing on all week, that the present and the visible can only be understood in light of the future and the invisible. Yeah. I mean, we could just leave that there for a while, and you could think about that in connection to all of life. That right now, the groaning of creation, the suffering that you are walking through right now, the only way to understand it is to think about what the future is and what we cannot yet actually see and taste. This type of confidence, friends, directly impacts your life. It directly impacts our present suffering. It directly impacts how we view our relationship to all of creation. And this leads us to our third and final question of the morning. If we are those who have tasted the first fruits of life with Jesus, what does that mean now in terms of how we live in this world? If we know that the shalom of Jesus, the peace, the wholeness, the fullness of Jesus is being restored, not just with us and God, not just with us and our bodies, not just with us and each other, but now with all of creation, what does that mean? What does that mean that there's this link between humanity and the rest of creation? What does it mean that we wait eagerly in hope? If we can grab hold of the fact that creation is subject to futility— but we're longing with hope. How do we live in light of that? I just want to say that if you grab hold of that tension, you begin to see that apply, almost like get massaged into the rest of your life, this will shift the whole purpose of how you understand the life of a Christian. This shifts us from being someone who just enjoys the benefits of Jesus but doesn't do anything about it to someone who will work to bring the future into the present. This shifts us to be those who actually care about the life around us because we're reclaiming, we're grabbing hold of what it means to be stewards, of what it means to be lords over creation that God intended us to be. This means that the work, the job of a Christian is to not just live in a holy huddle where we cover ourselves and don't go into the world. The job of a Christian, the life of being a disciple of Jesus means, what do I see the Spirit is doing? And how do I be part of that work? Friends, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And again, and in one sense, this can be kind of a, a theoretical, can just seem like a spiritual reality. So I want to give us an actual physical example of how to think about this. Now I realize there's a couple sailor maritime guys out there. So this next example I'm just realizing might hopefully not fall flat for you. Has anyone here ever heard of kedging? I'm looking at Andrew right now. Has anyone else ever heard of kedging? It's this term, it's an old sailing practice. And, and I'm going to talk about this in a second. But I think that if we understand this practice of kedging, we're going to understand what it means to bring the future into the present. Kedging is an old school sailing practice. It's a way to move a boat from one place to another through the use of anchors. Often we think anchors just hold the ship in place. They don't let it move because the anchor is there. But no, with kedging, you could maneuver big ships in and out of tight spaces. You could even bring them through storms by taking a small little rowboat. So here's the ship. You take a small little rowboat with an anchor and drop that anchor. And then you pull the ship 
towards that anchor. Does that make sense? Seems simple enough. (laughs) So when it comes to the church, and it comes to being followers of Jesus, those who have this future-oriented hope, we realize, church, that because Jesus has brought the future into the present, Jesus has grabbed hold of the anchor, and he's brought that already into the future. So what do we do now? We labor. We grab hold of that anchor line, and we say, how does that future already break in to right now? How do we grab hold of the future benefits that Jesus has already brought and bring that into the present? What would it look like if the people of Jesus already lived as if the future was broken? What would it look like if we lived with such confidence that we knew Jesus is with us? Again, remember, the present is interpreted in light of the future and the invisible. So Jesus is with us. His Spirit's here with us. What would it look like if we were so confident that Jesus was with us that we were willing to go do anything? If we did not live in fear, what would that look like for the people of Jesus? What would that look like here in Hampton Roads to be so sure that Jesus is with us, that he really is the king? How would you live if you were beyond a shadow of a doubt confident of that? What would look different in your life? Probably a lot. What would that look like if Redemption Church became known as a group of people who were not confident in themselves, but were confident that the future's already broken in? How do we live in light of that? How do we live together as a family in unity, showing that to all the people in Hampton Roads? Church, the future's breaking into the present. So, what does that mean, though, in relation to creation? So if the future's already broken into the present, and our job is to see that work and step into it, what does that mean? Friends, that means, it means creation matters. It means the physical things in this life actually matter. The fact that Jesus didn't come back like a ghost, he came back in a physical body. The fact that he's going to physically remake all things new means that everything in our world, our flesh, our tables, our buildings, our bodies actually matter. Our buildings, our homes, our pets, our yards, our neighborhoods, our very church building, it all matters, friends. Because Jesus is reclaiming all of creation, think about this. The physical stuff of this life now is infused with meaning. This means the physical places and locations in our life that just seem to be desolate in places of death are places where new creation is coming. And how do you think the Spirit is actually calling you to be that agent of new creation there? This means that your little garden that's failing, go work the ground. Go reinvigorate it. All physical stuff now has purpose because the new creation's breaking in. This means that the meals we will enjoy this week at Thanksgiving are so infused with new meaning. Oh man, this is a little glimpse of the future coming into the present. Let's have a huge party this week. Over the last several years, a couple years ago, my missional community went to this nursing home up the road. And later, as we got to know some of the staff and became friends with them, we realized that this was the type of nursing home where people just dropped their parents off to die. Forgotten group of people. Most of them had Alzheimer's, dementia, couldn't really remember much of anything. What would it look like to know that that place 
was a space for new creation to break in? What would it look like if a group of single people literally went there once a month, read the scriptures with them, planted a garden for them, brought flowers for them, sang Christmas carols with them? (laughs) A place that's just of death is now infused with life and meaning and purpose. That absolutely matters because the new creation's already breaking in. How then can we think about our life, our resources, the way that we consume in this world? How can we actually realize, how could we conserve and protect things rather than just be consumers all the time? Think about this. How does that mean that we should relate to creation? How does that mean that we could even think about things like green energy? That normally a lot of us would hear that and think, oh, buzzword, politics. Here we go. Hold on. If the story of God is actually shaping all things and Jesus is making all things new, how now would we think about things like green energy? Again, I'm not taking a political stance here. I'm asking you, what is your humanistics? What is your lens? What is interpreting how you see things in this world? Is it a certain allegiance or is it the story of God shaping all things in our life? Think about your body. Think about your diet. Think about the things that you're regularly filling and consuming your life with. How can the people of Jesus become cultivators rather than just destroyers? Again, this is, this is not about politics. This is about seeing and being envisioned for how the future breaks into right now. This means that we can actually give a darn about creation care and how to rightly live on planet Earth. Lastly, this means, I want you to hear this, the place you live actually matters. The place that you call home, the ground that you regularly walk on, the places where you feel belonging actually matter. The people and the places that you're investing in really do have new purpose and new energy. Last thing I'm going to say is that Paul is talking about suffering. He's talking about enduring. He's talking about groaning in the midst of waiting. So we have to realize that this passage, in one sense, is about creation, but all of the creation is a way to talk about the suffering that God's people are going through. At the end of the day, this passage is talking about the suffering and the groaning of creation, the way that we're not rightly relating to creation. But at the same time, that's not Paul's main focus. His focus is the suffering of the people of God. Paul is telling us in this passage, friends, that how you suffer actually matters. Paul directly ties our groaning and longing into the death seen in creation. But if the new creation is breaking in, then how we suffer in this world of physical pain and true emotional, spiritual suffering actually matters. Since the Spirit, according to the text, is the first fruits already given to us, you can endure. And you will endure because you have the first fruits of the Spirit. I want to read this quote from an amazing writer about Romans. Uh, His name is Tom Schreiner. He writes this, The presence of the Spirit assures believers of their eschatological, meaning their future inheritance, and the Spirit within them intercedes to God on behalf of believers so that God's will is accomplished in their lives, 
which is what the argument Paul is about to make next. Indeed, God has worked in such a way that everything that enters the life of believers works for their good. That is all of life's circumstances. That is, he's saying, all of life's circumstances will accomplish the goal of making believers like God's true Israel, his firstborn son, Jesus Christ. In light of knowing, friends, that all of your circumstances will make you into God's true sons and daughters, what does it mean now to wait eagerly? It means that we can view suffering in such a way that though we endure it, we can be confident in the face of it. Because suffering is not the final word. We will very soon step into becoming and realizing the glory of being the sons and daughters of God. So we wait eagerly. And we are the people of Jesus who bring shalom to all of creation, even in the midst of our suffering. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.